So tonight we turn to the book of Job. Job comes before the Psalms. It comes after Esther, page 392. In the black Bibles that are in the pews, page 392, the book of Job. So Job is placed here because it's one of the writings. It's uh, the books of the Old Testament are organized by type, not by chronology, generally speaking. They're organized by type, and this is a writing book, and so it's puts here. But it's actually one of the oldest books we have. It's actually uh, been in circulation for many, 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 many years. In fact, the, uh, the Jewish tradition is that it was one of the books that Moses wrote, that it was one of his stories. So that's how long they believe that it's been around. Like, it's been around a long, long, long time. So even though it, it gets placed here in our Bibles, it's actually a really ancient story. And the fact that we keep turning to it and that it remains in Scripture points to the deep truths that it says about suffering and about God and about pain and how we deal with these things. And so we, uh, let's read, let's read the beginning, the story of the book of Job. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold feast in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, or the accuser, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God from heaven fell and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels, and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, 
struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, If you considered my servant Job, there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was growing up, our family had this rule that if you were caught licking your fingers at the dinner table, you had to walk to the front door, count to 25, and then come back. My parents were very intent on getting us to use napkins, not licking our fingers. Your family probably had similar rules, rules that were like, you know, good behavior, good consequences, bad behavior, bad consequences, right? So lick your fingers, bad consequences. You've got to walk to the door, count to 25, come on back. Every family has these little things, and some of us share the things, too. It's like good behavior, good consequences. If you bring the car back before curfew, full of gas, you get to use the car again. Good consequences. If you break curfew and bring the car back with just a little tiny bit of gas in it so that when your parent has to go to work the next morning, he or she has to fit in a stop at the gas station before they get to work. And by the time they get to work, they're very upset with you because not only did you come back late from curfew, but you also left the car in this condition. Negative consequences. 
And so we grow up in this order, and we think this is how the world is supposed to work. Good behavior, good consequences. Bad behavior, bad consequences. That is the foundation for the book of Job. That's how things are supposed to work. That's why in the beginning of the chapter, in the very beginning of the book, they are very clear about who Job is. He is a good behavior kind of guy. Things are going well for him because he is upright. He is blameless. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And he has all kinds of blessings. He has beautiful children. He has wealth. He has health. He has the respect of his peers. He is, the text says, the goat of his time. (laughs) That's greatest of all time for those of you who are like, I'm sorry, what? He is the greatest. He is the one that everybody looks to. Good behavior, good consequences. So Satan, the accuser, goes to God and says, he's only playing the game because you're giving him good prizes. If you stop giving him all the good prizes, he's going to stop playing the game. God says, okay. So he loses his flocks, and his herds, and his servants, and his children. And what he does next is remarkable. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I go. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing. So Satan goes back to God and says, all right, let me dial it up. Come on, seriously. Like, we all know how when people start feeling bad themselves, that's when things get real. So let me try this again. And God says, okay, you can go ahead, dial it up. So he inflicts him with sores all over, physical pain. He is just in complete misery. The worst case of rash Weeping sores. He can't get comfortable no matter where he sits. His clothes aren't comfortable. He aches. Everything in him hurts. Plus, he's grieving. There is nothing in him that doesn't hurt. But here again, this is what he says Should we take good from the Lord and not the bad? He still doesn't sin, even in his suffering, even in his pain. And then his friends come, his friends come. They gather from all over, and they walk up, and they don't even recognize him, like, oh, whoa, this is worse than we thought, like, wow. They're so struck by his appearance that the best thing they do in the entire book happens right at the beginning. They sit, and they don't say anything for seven days. That's their best move. They just sit in silence for seven days. And that's the best part, because as soon as they open their mouths, oh, they say stupid things. They say stupid things. There are four of them. The first one says, because he remember, here's the logic he's working with, good behavior, good consequences. Well, Job has bad consequences. That means bad behavior. So he says to Job, now, come on, seriously, what did you do? Wow, you must have done something, and it it had to be bad. And Job's like, I didn't do anything. I've done nothing wrong. 
Then the second guy, Bildad, he pipes up and he says, well, you know, your kids died, so um, they probably did something really bad too. Not the most pastoral thing to say, Bildad. So, so far, Eliphaz says, you must have done something wrong. Bildad says, your kids must have done something wrong. Zophar says, actually, you probably did something that deserved worse punishment than what you actually got. That's how bad you are. Like, the punishment you got doesn't even fit the crime. You're actually a bit lucky you got away with this. Also not helpful. And then the fourth person says, God's probably just trying to teach you a lesson, so you should shut up and stop complaining. Also not helpful. These are the four friends. And they're all working, Job, his friends, even Satan, they're all working from this idea that good consequences leads to good behavior, good consequences, bad behavior, bad consequences. Now, we like to think that we're a little more theologically advanced than these folks, right? We, we get the nuance and the subtlety of our relationships. We get the fact that evil is everywhere in the world, even in us. Until something bad happens to us. Right? Because the moment when our life goes off the tracks, the moment when someone breaks up with us, when we don't get accepted to Spain, when our midterm grades come back and they are a full letter grade lower than they were the semester before, when someone we love is diagnosed with something horrible, when the suffering hits, isn't part of our response something like this? What are you doing? I thought we had a deal. I live a good life. You bless me with things. I do what I'm supposed to do. I get a good life. That's the way this deal is supposed to work. I go to loft on Sunday nights. I am kind to people. I avoid speeding. Most of the time. I generally live a good life. Bad things are not supposed to happen to me. We had a deal. And we don't only do this when bad things happen to us. We also start to try and figure out things when bad things happen to other people. We try to help them make sense of exactly why this bad thing has come into their lives. We say things like, well... Everything happens for a reason. Now, if you are in deep pain, if you are suffering some great loss, and someone comes up to you and they say, well, everything happens for a reason. You have my permission to spit on their shoes. <laughs> because that is a horrible thing to say. Don't ever say that. We ban that from use on this campus. You cannot say that anymore. Yes, yes, we're done, we're shutting it down. You can't say that anymore. Because when you're in deep pain and somebody says to you, well, everything happens for a reason, what do you spend the rest of your life trying to do? Figure out the reason. 
So not only are you suffering because the thing happened, you're also suffering because you cannot figure out why in the world it did happen. Why would God do this? Why let this diagnosis come into my life? Why that accident? Why that sexual assault? Why? We curse people. We are as helpful to people as Job's friends were to him when we say things like that. Those things aren't helpful. They are not compassionate. Because, spoiler alert, Job never found out why. He never found out why these things happened to him. This is a long book. This is 40 plus chapters. And a lot of it is Job and his friends having this big debate. They're like, well, you must have done something. And he's like, I didn't do anything. Well, you must have done something. I didn't do anything. I must have done something. God, why did you send me these friends? Seriously, these people. That's the book. They go back and forth and back and forth. They debate every now and then. He lifts his hands to God, and he's like, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't get this at all. Through the book of Job, he is angry. He is bitter. He is frustrated. Every now and then, he is super snarky to his friends. But he doesn't curse God. He waits. He cries out, and for so much of the book, there's just silence And he's just sitting, and he doesn't understand what's happening, and he's not getting better. His sores are getting worse. His friends aren't happening. He's got a splitting headache because all of these people keep saying these things that are stupid, and they can't figure it out, and it's not helping, and they won't leave. And he's crying out, and he's crying out, and he's crying out, and he gets silence. But he keeps crying out. And he keeps crying out. And he is incredibly honest about his pain. He doesn't try to protect God's feelings. He doesn't try to put it nicely. He is honest and he is bold in his suffering. After all this, in chapter 38, God responds. God responds to him. God shows up, page 420, if you want to follow along. So we've had all this debate, all this back and forth. What is God doing? How does God work? How does this whole fairness thing work? I thought it was this way. What is actually happening here? God, chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by word without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. So God's saying, oh, you got some questions for me? I have a few questions for you. And he proceeds to give Job the ultimate exam, and it's on biology and meteorology and astronomy and chemistry And not only does Job not know the answers, he can't even understand the questions. 
And God just goes on, and he's like, do you know about this? How about this? Do you know about this? Do you know about this? How about this? Do you know how this works? Do you know how this part of my creation works? How about this part of my universe? Do you know how this part of my universe works? And Job, during this whirlwind, during the swirl of things that's happening around him in chapter 40, he tries to, like, call a little time out. And he says, then Job answered the Lord, see, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Like he's getting it. He's getting the fact that God's perspective is very different from his perspective. He's getting to understand the fact that God runs the complicated universe in ways that he can't even begin to understand. And God uses two more examples. He says, let me tell you about the behemoth, and let me tell you about the leviathan. And people wonder what these animals are. Is it a hippopotamus? Is it a, a crocodile? We don't know. But here's what we know about these two animals. He describes them as wild and beautiful, and that he is tender toward them, and he loves them, and they are incredibly dangerous. A lot like life. Wild. Beautiful, dangerous. And so after God paints a picture of his universe and then gives an up-close detail on these two particular creatures, Job says, I got it. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I get it. I get it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. My suffering is still here. But you are God. And I am not. That is hard space to get to. It took him 40 chapters. Yesterday I was at a conference and I ran into an old friend of mine. I haven't seen her in a while and she came right up and just gave me a big hug and I asked her how she'd been doing and she said, you know, we've had a really hard year. She said, each of us has lost grandparents and then we had a year of fertility and we finally got pregnant and we had a miscarriage. And she was telling me this with tears in her eyes. And I was listening to her with tears in my eyes. And then she said this. I had to learn some really hard lessons this year. I realized that I put my hope in a lot of things that weren't God. I realized that I was trusting God only if God did good things for me. 
and I had to move to the space, and she was very transparent about moving into, not living in yet, moving into a space where even if my plans for my life didn't turn out, I could still trust God. I had to give up my control and say, not my will but yours be done. That's the book of Job. And that's hard space to get to. That takes time. That is not easy. And you've got 39 chapters of lament and weeping and crying out. And then God shows up in this really profound way and it makes him go, it doesn't always happen for us. We always don't get the whirlwind all the time. But what Job realizes is that suffering is not a referendum on the character of God. Suffering is a referendum on his character. Suffering is a time for him to say, who am I before the face of God? Who am I before the creator of the universe? Who am I? And am I willing to trust him even if I end up in an ash heap? It takes such humility. It takes time. We don't have to like it. We don't have to understand it. And the other thing to remember is that we have another significant piece of the suffering story we know more than Job knew. There are various times in the book when he cries out. He actually asks for an umpire. He says, I just need someone to call the balls and the strikes here because this thing, I just, I need somebody. I need a mediator. I need a go-between because I'm trying to talk to the, the God of the universe and I'm just a mortal. Like, I need somebody. I need a mediator. And Job didn't know, but he was crying out for the Messiah. He was crying out for Jesus. In the book of Isaiah, the Messiah is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. When Jesus took on flesh, he came near to us to understand suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to have a friend betray. He knows what it's like to stand over a grave. He knows what it's like to see a family devastated by illness. He knows what it's like to be rejected and misunderstood. Jesus understands suffering. But Jesus didn't just come to understand our suffering. Jesus came to redeem our suffering. At one point, Job cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that at the last he will stand on the earth. 
And we get to say, yes, Joel, we know who your Redeemer is. We know that he lives. We know that in his death and in his resurrection, he has given us a glimpse, a foretaste of what is yet to come when the sufferings of all of this world will be moved, will be transformed from death to life. We get little glimpses of that now. When you tell the story of your parents' divorce and what it did to you, and you see that there's somebody else who is helped by your telling of the story, when you talk about your journey from addiction to recovery and you see that someone else is encouraged and given hope by your story, when you tell your story moving from mental illness to mental health and you see that people are helped and they're encouraged by your story, those are all glimpses of what is yet to come. Those are all glimpses of the redemption of our stories, the redemption of our sufferings. We put aside the everything happens for a reason phrase and we replace it with everything will be redeemed. That's what we're living into. Because we know that when the Redeemer comes and he stands on the earth, we are promised there will be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for all those things will have passed away. And we are given the image of a God who comes so close that he wipes away every tear from our eyes. That's what we're living toward. That's what gives us hope for the now. Because we have a Redeemer who lives. And while we long for him to come back in flesh and reign as king on the earth, we also know that he is as close as a breath now. When you are crying in your bed at 3 o'clock and you're convinced that nobody hears you, he does. When you are driving down the highway, pounding on the steering wheel, yelling at the heavens, he's with you. When you find yourself in the space of worship, unable to sing or pray or even believe because the suffering is so thick, he is with you. Jesus is the one who draws near to those who suffer. Jesus is the one who promised to redeem our suffering. Jesus is the one who right now is with you in your suffering. In his death and in his resurrection, he gives us hope. Do we like the suffering? No. Do we understand the suffering? No. Is God with us in the suffering? Yes. Blessed be his holy name. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be his holy name. Amen.